there's a lot of miles of trails that already exist that nobody with a disability, specifically a mobility disability, has ever had an adaptive mountain bike or adaptive hiking tool on, but they work. But how do we know they work? So it's a lot easier to go out and measure these trails and get that information out there so that more people with disabilities can be getting on more and more trails than it is to just wait for these major projects of maintenance or new trails being cut and doing it on those. Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blom. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. Episode 158 features Quinn Brett and Joe Stone of Dovetail Trail Consulting. Dovetail specializes in adaptive assessments and providing solutions for adaptive recreation with the goal of helping to provide more people more access to the outdoors. You may remember Joe as a past guest on The Trail Effect. Quinn, on the other hand, is a new guest, but she has been on many other podcasts and has an extensive background in the world of trails. Cooley Creative is the title sponsor for this episode. They design and build custom websites, as well as help companies with branding, photography, and e-commerce. Cooley Creative was started in Wisconsin, but is now based out of Bend, Oregon. Jared from Cooley Creative is a friend of mine. We've traveled together on multiple mountain bike trips, and sometimes he sends it. For more information about Cooley Creative, head on over to www.dojustsendit.com. Yes, that's right, www.dojustsendit will get you to the Cooley Creative website, so check it out. Trail One Components the mountain bike component brand that was created to provide the best quality mountain bike components while giving back to the trails with every purchase of their products. My favorite Trail One components are the Crockett Handlebar, the Rockville Stem, and the Hell's Gates Grips. For a 20% discount on all Trail One components, use the coupon code TRAILPOD at checkout. By using this coupon code, you are not only supporting trails, but a small commission can come back to the trail effect and help support the show. Now on to the trail effect with Quinn and Joe. Here we are today on Trail Effect. Today I have Quinn Brett and Joe Stone. Joe has been on the podcast before. He is a he was a very popular guest at that. In fact, when I re-released his show, it immediately got a lot of downloads, which is awesome. And he has a really good story to tell. So I encourage everybody who maybe not has listened to that episode to listen to that episode because we're not going to rehash that in this one, but you can learn a lot about what Joe has done through that show. And Quinn is a new guest to the show, but Quinn has a deep history in terms of working in the world of trails. You recently worked for as a program analysis for the U.S. Park Service in the world of wilderness accessibility and outdoor recreation and conservation. And I believe you're also the development director for the Unite to Fight Paralysis. Is that correct, Quinn? Yeah, development director for Unite to Fight Paralysis. Yes. And that's a newer role from you from what I could find or for you from what I could find? Yeah, I got there mid-November. I Stopped working for the government and decided to dive all in with Dovetail Trails uh, Consulting with my buddy Joe here and then work on spinal cord research as well. (laughs) Let's dive into, like, we'll set the stage for what Dovetail Trail Consulting is by talking about universal trail design. This is a topic that Joe and I discussed in the past, but I think for me, it doesn't ever get old. And I think a lot of people really could use like kind of some education on what, what that really means and how it relates to just like universal design and accessibility in general. You want to, you want to take this one, Joe? Um, yeah, I can, I can jump in. I'm sure Quinn will jump in a little bit as well. And, and since we spoke last, actually, you know, the, we've been kind of toying with this term universal trail design because it trips a few people up, especially from like a public lands management side of things. Because there is an actual technical definition for universal design, you know, for infrastructure and things like that. And with trails, that's not exactly what we're doing. So Quinn and I have really started to move move towards talking a lot about more labeling it as sustainable trail building, right? And I'll let Quinn, because she's really good at talking about the sustainable trail building side (laughs) of things. 
she's more elegant with it and and articulate about it than I am. But that's kind of the direction we've gone. It doesn't change the idea. So the idea behind sustainable trail building and and what Quinn and I do, what we add to it, is making it to where these trails can work for as many people as possible. So we're not saying we're going to go into your trail systems and plow them down and take away all the features and take away the original characteristics of those trails to make it to where they can be ADA compliant, for example. We want to go in there and really help work with those few features that exist within that. Let's call it, let's take a, a black downhill tech trail, for example. The majority of that trail is going to work with where today's technology is for the, the more equipped downhill adaptive mountain bike. But there might be a few things here and there that might need an alternative route or might need a root or rock moved or something really minor that nobody else is really going to even notice. It doesn't, it doesn't affect the trail. It wasn't put there. It's not people's favorite part of the trail. They usually, everybody else is actually probably riding around it as well, but it gets in the way of the width of our bikes or the, you know, the clearance that we might have underneath. So we're, we're really talking about making small changes to the existing trails and small changes to the designs of trails that are in the design process so that they can accommodate people with disabilities and the technology that we have access to today. Yeah, essentially like. To go off of what Joe's saying, so as trail builders, obviously, like we're very much thinking about uh, the environmental sustainability of that trail. Like, how are we going to mitigate the water, all of that kind of thing. But as in the whole planning process and our visitor use management planning, like we have to consider the economic and in trail building, you should be considering the economic aspect of sustainability. Like if we're going to put, as we were talking before we started recording, like hand-built trails versus machine-built trails, like what's it, one might co- cost more in the upfront, but how much more work overall are you going to have to put into that trail for seasonal maintenance, for upkeep, for managing the the amount of people that are going to be on it? And then we have, yeah, and then that brings into human sustainability and social sustainability. So these four components of sustainability seems to grasp a little, uh, have a little bit more like olive branches to other places that are important in this whole process. Uh, and it is a universal design, for instance, but yeah, as it was triggering for folks, because universal design has seven principles that are uh, like keyed out and it means something on the accessibility side. And what we're Joe, Joe and I are doing are like kind of broadening, we're moving past accessibility into like usability. Let's dive into the difference of accessibility and usability. You know, Joe, you brought up ADA trail and I, man, I, I've been hearing it for years, but it seems like a community thinks they want to check a box with, we're going to put an ADA trail here and it's going to be like right up front and it's going to get you like, I don't know, a few hundred yards to see something and that's it. And that's not really, yeah. that doesn't really do, I mean, it's, it's good to get to that, but that's not good enough is what I'm saying. Well, yeah, those, I, those experiences are needed. Sorry, Joe. Yeah. Those experiences are needed and necessary. Like the, there's a spectrum of experiences that people desire to have just that we've been boxing. Accessibility is great. But that term then boxes people into that is where the people with disabilities can only go. Yeah. And, and to add to that, like you made me think of, so when I, when I, I got injured 13 years ago and adaptive mountain biking and hiking was pretty new then. It had been around for a bit longer than, than I've been using a wheelchair, but like the equipment had no suspension. E-motors didn't exist. Uh, the technology was just not as capable as what it is today. It was kind of like going back to the 1980s for mountain biking, for example. And so in those days, that's what I remember in Minnesota. I can't remember the name of the park, but I think it, it was just south of Lakeville and Lakeville, Minnesota. And there was a park there that opened up that one mile loop, that one mile like ADA loop. And it was really cool then because it had never happened before. And finally, we had a trail that was had a focus to make it work for the mobility devices that we use today in trail systems, but, or at least what we used back then, but it limited us. And so as time went on and those projects continued, yes, they're checking the box, but the technology grew to a point where we can access so much more than just that trail. And we want to, and we want more adventure and we want to see more and we want to go further with all of our friends. And we want all of that. We want that inclusion to to really include us in that process when people are working on old trails or creating new ones. And so what the funny thing is, though, with that that same trail system that I went to that I was just talking about that had that one one mile loop, I went back there a couple of years ago with my bowhead 
I was in Minnesota visiting family and we went, I went with the buddy and we rode every single trail in the entire park uh, that had never been touched. There was a couple spots that I needed some assistance, easy fixes that the, the trail maintenance crews could, could adjust to make it work better for people with disabilities. But we went on every single trail through the whole park. And, you know, 10 years ago, that wasn't even possible. Could have done it with the old technology. So it just shows where the technology and the capabilities within people with disabilities has really advanced. So we're trying to get the trail systems to catch up to that as well and get out of this ADA compliant. We need them. We need ADA compliant trails. Those one mile loops are necessary. They serve a purpose, but there's a lot of people out there that want to go beyond that. Yeah. You really illustrated that when we were talking about the Kootenai Adaptive downhill series races that you were, you did back in, I believe, 2021, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think it was about then. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about how uh, adapt the adaptive equipment has really, you just, you brought up the fact that the technology has evolved, but even since we've talked last, you know, the bowhead specifically is narrower, but let's talk about like what the widths really need to be and, and kind of characterize that it's not as wide as some people might think. I know. And like in my riding with, when I rode a Jeremy, like the last time we rode together, he was talking about how he just changed some stuff on the front of his adaptive equipment and it allowed him to get through stuff that required an inch or two less of clearance than it was previously, you know, and that's a lot really. Yeah. As far as like specs go, so the bowhead's like 28 inches wide, reactive adaptations, they make many different hand cycles. They're generally 32 to for 34 inches wide. Board on Explorer, I think is the wider one. I think that's what Jeremy rides. Um, those can be 34 to 36 and 37 inches wide. And again, that's just depending on like how big are your tires too. Like, are you running two and a half or are you running like 1.8? Uh, and that's where maybe Jeremy changed some stuff. Like, so you can, then you can squeeze in little places, littler places. Yeah. And let's clarify that if a trail is 28 inches wide, we do want it to be wider because otherwise you're like right on the edge with a bowhead, right? Well, yeah, and sure. Like for me, for example, like those, yeah, if it's a hand cut trail, often those are the smaller trails. And so my reactive adaptations, which is 34 inches wide, I'm riding on the outside of that trail uh, in the cactus, in the rocks and whatever, like I'm hitting every single obstacle. So it's not a flow trail ever for me if I'm riding that, if that device, but a bench cut trail, for instance, the specs for a bench cut trail that accommodates every single one of our devices. Easy breezy. It's really interesting when Quinn and I go do some of this work together and we're working with land managers, trail builders, and that sort of thing. Because Quinn and I have, we both have spinal cord injuries, but hers is a lot lower than mine. So she has a lot more, she has full function in her arms and hands and a lot more trunk control than I have. And I'm a higher level injury. I'm a C7 quadriplegic, so incomplete. So I'm paralyzed from the chest down. I don't have any abs or trunk muscles to support myself that way. And I have no grip in my left hand. Super fortunate to have good function in my right hand, though. So we have two different, significantly different disabilities in the way that we function. And we also, for the most part, especially when we're doing the work through dovetail, we purposely show up on two different devices. So she's on a reactive adaptations bomber, and I'm on the bowhead reach. So the bowhead reach has also, because Quinn has has thrown some really big wheels on hers, she has a lot of clearance on hers. So her hers has a lot more clearance getting over rocks and roots and that sort of thing than my bowhead. So I might bottom out a little bit more, but I'm narrower by six inches than hers. So I fit through things more. Mine can handle cross slopes, the left to right slope a lot better. So I can be like cruising, having a good time in a section (laughs) and be sitting upright. And Quinn is like completely slumped over trying to keep all three wheels on the ground. And so we hit all these areas where I'll look at Quinn and I'll be like, God damn it, Quinn, you got through that so easy. And I struggled there. And then, and then we'll get to another section and it'll be the exact opposite where I'm cruising no problem and, and she might be struggling more. And the, the beauty in that is by us showing up in the way that we do, it shows these trail builders the difference and the variety and the diversity that, that lies within disability so that they can see why we need. So it's like you can't just go off of the bowhead for your specs because someone, Jeremy might show up on his Explorer and that those specs aren't going to work for him. So we go off of like, well, what's the widest technology out there that people are using for this type of access? And then we try to factor in a bunch of different disabilities and we get to show that with how the two of us operate together. Let's take that to a specific place. Walden's Ridge in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Joe, I know you were there last, I believe it was fall of 2022. Mm -hmm. Quinn, I don't know if you were there. 
Yeah. Were you there together? together. So let's talk about what you just talked about, but apply it to Mm -hmm. what you did at Chattanooga and at Walden's Ridge in Chattanooga. Can I tell the story of J.O.? Because 100%. So Joe was a little, Joe's flight got delayed on Monday morning. So I was like by myself with International Mountain Begging Association folks. uh, And we arrived at Chattanooga and I didn't know we got invited there to assess trails for their accessibility, but we, I didn't really know the backstory. And it turns out J.O., who's like the senior trail builder, kind of felt thrown under the bus. Like these trails were pretty much complete. And now here come some adaptive riders to come check it out. I, Joe and I didn't know that, like that we were like, hey, we're going to see how this goes, but you didn't, we didn't tell you that we were coming kind of thing. So we had like the whole Monday morning before Joe even arrived, like I didn't know, but now looking back, I can see J.O. had a little bit of like, anger or like animosity towards this whole scene that was going to happen for the week. Uh, but then Joe and I rode and no joke, we were on the trail for 10 minutes and J.O. turned around and was like, this is no problem. Holy shit. And by Thursday, when we had a community day and we we're having beers with the whole town of Chattanooga and trail builders and such, like he was to tears, like telling the story of like, holy shit, this works. <laughs> yeah. He thought us coming there was good. We were going to put like a big F on his trail system because because he didn't have any, there was no talk of or focus on making them also work for people with disabilities and for adaptive mountain bikers. And he knew nothing about the equipment, knew nothing about any of it. And so he just assumed it wasn't going to work. And mm-hmm. what we really identified through it was that with the way, the current way that trails are being built today and where the technology is at for people with mobility disabilities, they're they're pretty close to each other. And that's where, especially when new trails are being cut and the planning process is being developed, like us being able to help in that process and tweak a few things here or there before they're even digging up the dirt. It, it doesn't, you, we don't need you to rethink how you build trails. We don't need you to totally redo your plans. We're, you know, that trail system really proved that. And yeah, J.O., he, he not only saw it from a technical side of things of like, wow, this works, your gear works, the way we build trails now works and all those components. But he saw the larger level of like, he ha- now has this opportunity to help get more people on trails that have historically never had access before. And he literally, this tough Harley riding dude was <laughs> cheering up and giving this talk to the community about the work that we had accomplished over the week. It was a beautiful moment. It was it really was cool. Beautiful. And it's little things like, right. I mean, this was a purpose built park in the middle of Chattanooga. So pushing the envelope of uh, downhill mountain biking and gap and jumps and all these things, but like they didn't put any gap jumps in sick. Like you don't really want that in a, like in a place that people aren't signing waivers and people are just showing up anyway. Uh, and that works well for us. Like, and sure there needed to be a few ride arounds, but there should be ride arounds on features for everyone. let's talk about what your experience was in terms of what you found, like kind of the details of the trails, because that system has been talked about several times on this podcast, even as recently as the last podcast that was released, because McGill Trail Fabrications was the company that I had on last and they did the big jump lines at Mm. Walden's Ridge. And they were raving about how the dirt was so good there compared to what they have in Colorado to work with. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The dirt there is pretty special. That was like, the eye opener for me. It's it's that part was pretty amazing. I think on the um on the, the technical side, especially for the the and we actually had a, another one of our buddies who happened to be in town that joined us on a different piece of equipment. So we had three different styles that were out there riding together. As far as the trails go, I mean the we didn't run into a lot of problems. To be completely honest, there was a couple of areas that had really tight turning radiuses for the berm turns to get around certain things, but they they were only that way because that's just what the land had to offer to be able to make that turn happen. Uh, and there was only a couple of them and they were like at the top before you really start building up momentum and get flowing. It was more just like the, the, like the approach to where the trail really got started. And then outside of that, there was a few areas for clearance where, like I said before, like Quinn was, was cruising over some of the rocks on the climbing trails with no issues. And that was, you know, a little bit more challenging for me. And so they just kind of were able to put their eyes on that and how they can still keep those technical climbs the way they wanted to keep them, but maybe move a few of the bigger rocks. Like I said, like if you ever sat back and watched these things that I'm talking about, where there might be a rock that's in the way for an adaptive mountain bike, and you watch 
a bunch of people on two-wheeled bikes go and ride up there, or even on hiking trails, you watch a bunch of people walk, everybody avoids that rock anyway. It's just they're able to avoid it. They have a, a natural go around by being so by be, by having such a narrow width and stuff like that to ride around it. So it's a just getting rid of a few things. So Quinn was able to like kind of crush that some of that stuff a lot better than I could with the two different devices. We ran into a couple spots with width on the climbing trails, and it's mainly because the climbing trails weren't built in like a flow trail design, right? And so they're just they're you know you're not going as fast. You, it doesn't you can navigate around certain things a little bit easier. So they just kind of like, we marked them and like, just maybe, you know, that tree needs to not be there or that rock could be it moved or whatever. There was a couple off camber sections on the downhill side of things that were a challenge for things that, for the equipment that can't articulate, like the bowhead reach can or the bowhead RX. Like that, um, like that toilet, toilet bowl feature. That was a little freaky if you're not going fast. <laughs> yeah. And so that was one where it was like, how can the question mark was like, how can this be done? Because as we all know, like you should be going slower on your first lap down a trail anyway, so you can learn it. So you know it's around each corner and you can kind of, you know, put a study on all the features and then build from that. And, you know, to just go rip around this toilet bowl thing mm-hmm. at high speed to where it wouldn't be an issue for Quinn's bike at all. That's pretty committing in that spot <laughs> because you don't really know how it feels yet. And so, but we had some assistance to be able to help us get around those spots. And I think once you're flowing, it all worked better. But it was that place we left there and we were like, I would come back here as is, like even if they didn't do anything. Hopefully that, you know, they do these certain things to make the climbing trail better, to make turning radiuses a little better where they can, clearance a little better, cross slope a little better in the in whatever spots it's possible. But I would make a trip there just to go ride it as it was the first time we rode it, no problem. And then it would be super fun. Yep. What other places have you been to either prior to Dovetail or post? Oh, Dovetail is pretty, soon, pretty new, so maybe you haven't been anywhere yet. Um, that are kind of examples like the one we just used, like Chattanooga. Yeah, Joe and I've done quite a bit of work together. Like we officially, I think that was like a kickoff for let's, let's make Dovetail official with Chattanooga last November. Uh, but since then, we've been like we assessed 100 miles of trail in Bend, Oregon this last May for. Uh, yeah. Coda, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Central Oregon Trail Alliance. Yeah. What kind of stuff did you pick up on there in terms of like things they might need to do? Or or was it another example of like, hey, like most of this stuff is pretty good. Like we can we can use pretty much the stuff as is. Yeah, a lot of that stuff was pretty good. Unfortunately, like we've pushed the trip to May instead of April, but it was a, quite a snowy year, so we didn't get up as high as we wanted. Uh, as they have a ton of trails that are up, up higher and they were under snow. Uh, so we assessed 100 miles of trails, some out in the, like, out in the sagebrush areas and then mostly in this one central zone. And like some trails like legitimately had a, two or three things to move and we could spot, uh, spot check them that day. Yeah. Snow last yeah, year it, isn't quite like this year, is it? No. <laughs> ben was really interesting because just the way that, and everywhere is different. And that's why like, it's it's important to have, you know, Quinn or I or some other people that are doing this similar type of work out there because, you know, there is no, like Walden's Ridge to Bend, Oregon are totally different. You can't really compare them. The dirt's different. The terrain's different. Jackson Hole, bring it here. Okay, totally different. So you run into different issues. Since we couldn't go up higher on the trails, most of the trails, like, they don't have a lot of undergrowth. And there wasn't a lot of side hill cutting that was going on. And so if there was two trees too narrow, we could just ride around the trees, you know, and they had areas where they were throwing like the public or the maintenance crews were throwing logs down on those sides so that people didn't go around them. Because some of it was like just wide enough for your handlebars to get through. So I could see why some people would just go around those trees anyway. And so, you know, for example, in those spots, like a suggestion was like, hey, why not? You know, all these logs get put in the way. So now adaptive riders can't go around this, but it's an easy fix. So what about a little sign on the tree that says like it's a go around for adaptive riders, you know, so that people don't start throwing logs because I, and I get it for good reason. Everybody wants you to stay on the trail, but there are certain reasons why we have to kind of make a small detour to get around certain spots. But right. Like have, locals getting mad that we were like, if the logs go away, then that means you know, then locals are like, ah, put the log back, put the log back. But like, no, we removed the log for a reason. (laughs) 
Yeah. But we did, I've rode there quite a bit in the past and I have rode those higher trails and I was really excited to get up there because that even though we couldn't, we did get on some that opened up the mm-hmm. door to, to really show what the capabilities are between our skills and the equipment itself. So a little bit more technical terrain, some rock drops, some areas where the, the, the you know, the way the side hill was and the way that that cross slope was, was too much. And so those are areas that we marked and gave them suggestions on how they could fix those. But a lot of it, they were shocked. They were like, yeah, I can't, I didn't realize that after mountain bikes can do this. Like this is, we didn't think that this trail would work and we didn't even get into like the really, really fun stuff. And so it, it was an interesting one to go and do because what Quinn and I did over those hundred miles every day started with about 30 to 45 minutes of education because we had different volunteers for trail maintenance, different crews with us every day. We had one or two people that were the consistent ones every day, but every day we did a bit of a presentation on disability, on the diversity within that, on the equipment we're on, why Quinn's on what she's on and I'm on what I'm on. And then when we would stop and look at certain things that were issues or the things that were done really well, we would point that out and educate them on that. So that the goal is that when we leave, not only this report that we give them so that they can see all these areas that were problems for us, they can put that into their maintenance plans and fix all of that. But also now all of these volunteer trail builders and maintenance people that are there helping them make this whole system what it is. Now they have a little bit of this lens that they can use. So if they are working on a trail this spring and they see that one rock, that one thing that just needs to be kicked out of the way, like they can just do that. And slowly but surely trails just start getting better and better. So it's kind of like the knowledge is power. And that's what we try to share. Yeah. And similarly, work, like working in national parks, Joe and I worked in Teton National Park and Rocky Mountain National Park, like doing the same thing for hiking because these these mobility devices are expensive and they're often the our tool for both hiking and biking. Yeah. And you brought up a, a point that a topic that I wanted to hit on during this conversation, which is signage. That was mm-hmm. something that Joe and I got into briefly in the last conversation. It was something that wasn't even on my radar in the last conversation. But maybe Quinn, you can go into this and talk about your perspective on signage in terms of like what type of information should be there just to inform people on how to make a decision whether or not they should use that trail, regardless of what they're on for equipment. Yeah. So having worked in the federal government, uh, I realized that there's laws that, you know, like just like there's an accessible trail, those have to meet certain standards, just like any of the bathroom in your parking lot should also meet accessibility standards. In 2013, we updated those standards for accessibility to outdoor recreation areas in federal land, and that our trail sign information should include five things from the running slope, the cross slope, the width, the length of the trail. Important qualifying information rather than like the subjective green, blue, black, easy, moderate, hard. Like easy for who? Moderate for who? And what equipment? For what? Like what family members? Like, you know, so this. This information for Fedland purposely was for, yes, for people with disabilities, but it, like, yeah, I remember this as working as a climbing ranger in Rocky Mountain National Park. I remember this law passing and us taking away signs that said Long's Peak is a difficult hike, like, because that is so subjective. Like, and so this information is what allows us, Joe and I have adopted it and are trying to press it forward to like city and local governments because this law is not, doesn't apply to them because they Accessibility is under two different laws, Architectural Barriers Act and American with Disabilities Act. But trying to like streamline this information. If everybody had this objective information about the trail, how long it is, how wide it is, the average width, then we can make more informed decisions as users of, hey, this this type of equipment would be my choice of equipment. I'm going to need a friend or four friends for this trail because of that information. Yeah. And you want to expand on that a little bit, Joe, too? I think... The way you explained it, Joe, in the way you just, which is similar to the way you just explained it, Quinn, is it makes so much sense because you, you just nailed it with green, blue, and black. Like that means so many different things in so many different places to everybody. Oh yeah. <laughs> like mm-hmm. a green trail where I live is not a green trail where someone else is live. Someone else lives in a blue trail yeah. might be a green trail. Right. And it's, it is left up for so much interpretation of, of what that actually means. Right. And it's can serve a purpose, like it gives you a general scope, but I feel like with this new technology and adaptive equipment, we're not there yet. Like 
we can start rating the trails once we actually get on the trails to know what they're like. But first we have to get on the trails and we can't get on the trails because we don't know shit about them. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's, there's a lot to it about this. I mean, one public land managers love being able to put out objective information versus trying to create a separate rating system. And so one, it takes a liability off of them Two, It's a lot easier. Right. And so there's a lot of miles of trails that already exist that nobody with a disability, specifically a mobility disability, has ever had an adaptive mountain bike or adaptive hiking tool on, but they work. But how do we know they work? So it's a lot easier to go out and measure these trails and get that information out there so that more people with disabilities can be getting on more and more trails than it is to just wait for these major projects of maintenance or new trails being cut and doing it on those. So we have a lot of opportunity out there that we just don't know about yet because the information isn't, doesn't exist. And that's what this information for both on the trailhead sign, but then what would hopefully live on whatever that trail systems website is, or eventually maybe trail forks and that sort of thing so that we can see that objective information and go and adventure and have a ball and try new trails and go out and experience things with our friends and families that don't have disabilities as well. And so it, it, it creates that. But then also it, it's timeless other than what the environment and the weather is going to do, right? So obviously everything's always subject to change. So a really harsh winter could make some changes to that trail. So that might change the average width or the av- or might have a section in it that now is a lot trickier than it was before. But we can't avoid that. But what it does do is make it timeless in the sense of, well, technology is going to change. What's possible for people with disabilities is going to change. As somebody opens a new door of possibilities, other people see that. And now they're like, oh, we can do that on that piece of equipment. And they go there, right? It's just like everything. A new record is hit. And now people are going after a new record. And somehow we're still setting records and running. It's ever changing, ever evolving, right? And so as technology changes, putting out a trail rating system versus this objective information is really tough because it, like, let's just say, Let's go back to my story uh, uh, in the beginning of that one trail system in Minnesota that had the one mile loop that was for adaptive mountain biking. So that was great then. And that was kind of hard then because there were no e-motors and the, the technology was older and harder and had no suspension and all that. But if I go on that now, that trail is so much easier than it was then. So you either have to constantly be updating the trail rating systems to apply to people with disabilities as technology changes, or the objective information just lives there and people still know it. And as technology changes, that doesn't change how that applies to the newer technology that comes out. So it just creates this everlasting system that, you know, as long as the trails don't get completely washed out, we have an objective system that allows people with and without disabilities to make informed decisions on our public and private lands to go out there and explore and have an adventure and enjoy time with their friends and families. It's a sustainable way of providing information. (laughs) It just made me think like as a person who, you know, has maintained a lot of trail, but has had to explain maybe the original intent of a trail that's maybe changed over time. If you have that objective information out there, say it has a already a width of say, we'll say 48 inches, right? And a tree falls on it. And say the tree gets cut, but it's not cut back to that width, but it's, we'll call it passable. Like it provides a baseline of what that trail was intended to be from the beginning of when it was signed. Right. And so it takes that question mm-hmm. out of the, out of the debate as well. Right. And it creates that consistency of like, okay, well, these are the standards that this trail, like, yeah. And that's where jo- Joe and I, when we were assessing in Ben is like, okay, what is the characters of these trails? And like, the characteristics of these trails, like we're not asking, we're not trying to dumb down the entire trail system and bend. We're trying to stick with the characteristics of that trail, the intent of that trail. And then what are the barriers that are the significant stopping point for people with mobility disabilities? Speaking of barriers, what kind of barriers did you come across in your uh, professional life and government, Quinn, when it came to like <laughs> policies and perspectives and maybe perceived barriers when you're like digging into some of the more detailed side of things? Mm, you're making me flash back to this when I first, so I was a climbing ranger in Rocky Mountain National Park and a professional rock climber. So I was able to go to wherever I wanted on top of mountains, do handstands, whatever the shit I wanted. Now I'm paralyzed from the waist down. My legs don't work. What a slap in the face for huh, the places I can go. 
And I returned to work in the National Park Service in the Wilderness Accessibility and Outdoor Recreation Divisions and just kind of melded this thought because, of course, where do I want to be? I want to be back outside. I want to be playing. I don't want to be on pavement. And I recall a wilderness, somebody in the Wilderness Division in the National Park Service saying something to the the like of what I'm asking for, this work that Joe and I are doing, is akin to drilling in Alaska. And I was like, "Hmm, that's quite a bit harsh. Like. So quite a bit of pushback. That's rare, but a lot of it, I guess, uh, there's been some instances like that, but a lot of it is more uh, people are psyched to help, but they just had no idea how, and they just didn't have somebody to help communicate or handhold or show them. And that was one of, I guess that's my biggest, one of my biggest cruxes in working for the federal government was like, you can't just give guidance. And that's what Joe and I bump up against even now. Like we can, sure, we can have a one-sheeter of like, hey, make the trail at least 36 inches wide because it'll accommodate most mobility devices. But that still doesn't give you the perspective and the actual long lasting need as it is to see how these mobility devices operate and see disability firsthand and why Joe needs a battery powered piece of equipment. And I choose to use one, although my arms are fully operable, but for people who don't have a full arm function, like that battery is the only way. And so I guess that was one of my biggest cruxes was like saying, hey, you should just create guidance and we'll hand it off to the parks and then they can figure it out. <laughs> Do you have anything to add to that one, Joe? <laughs> uh, not much. I mean, I can't. I, I mean, just from what I know of the government, like my hat goes off to Quinn for <laughs> we're working within that system for as long as she did because it's tough. And it's not anybody's. It's a lot of, a lot of times it's not even anybody's like fault. It's like just this no. system that's set up to make things really. And I think sometimes in a good way, like certain changes to make on public lands should be really challenging to make. You know, it should take yeah. time. It should be well thought out. It should need certain studies to make sure it's being done in, you know, in a, in a way that's not going to negatively impact the environment. Like, but with those systems in place, it just, it does make some things really hard. I think the biggest, I think the biggest challenge that whether you work for the government or just in society in general, I've worked more in the nonprofit world on the, programmatic side of things it's shifting mindset and that mm-hmm. that that is just one because of the way society's been for a long time and it's hard to get people to to change the way they think but also the lack of education which is why that's such a big component to what Quinn and I do is we really do want people to not only understand the technical end of things on how they can work make trails work better for more people but why is that right how does the equipment work why did how does this impact the disability community? One of the things that there isn't a study out there for it yet, but it would be lovely to have this information is, well, how many people with disabilities are visiting national parks? And then with and then include their friends and families that come with them. Like how much of an impact? It's about 15% of the population has a significant disability in the United States that needs like a mobility device or something like that. That's a lot of people. And so Sometimes I think getting people to wrap their heads around, well, we're doing this now. And although you've never seen anybody with a disability using an adaptive mountain bike or hiking tool or mobility device out here in this area, that's probably because this area doesn't work. But as soon as you build it in a way that will open that up, and then it's known that that does work in that way now for people with disabilities, you will start seeing people. So it's like you have to, like, they could build it and they will come kind of mentality that you have to have it sometimes is a hard sell you know that's sometimes a hard sell like to get people to wrap their heads around that as well well and in the government work so i'm in the wilderness division and i'm in the accessibility division there's wilderness laws there's accessibility laws and in wilderness laws section 4c there is no motorized equipment no mechanized devices no wheels we joe and i the only way we get around are wheelchairs and accessibility like so just Teaching wilderness managers, I suppose that, hey, it's not an if it's not a mutually exclusive thing, like we have accessibility laws and we need to be providing the same experiences that we are providing for all other people to people with disabilities. And we haven't been doing that in the rounded way that we could be. <laughs> well, on a, on a more broader spectrum, this reminds me of an argument I used to have in my office at, at my when I worked for Wisconsin DOT all the time, which was like, the purpose of adding bike lanes to a highway. Well, nobody, I'd hear all the time. Nobody rides their bike there today. 
Well, yeah, because you're taking your life in your hands because there isn't room for it. Like, <laughs> right? why would they? <laughs> yeah. Again, right. You don't see us, then you have nothing to fix. That's one of the things that Joe and I harp on a lot. Like if you don't see us out, then there's absolutely nothing to fix. Uh, and same, same. So like people have been told there's no wheels in wilderness. Well, then like, so our community hasn't been going to wilderness. And then when we do go, there's a misunderstanding that we shouldn't be there in the first place. So we're kicked off. Like that's a negative downward cycle. So we got to change that spiral going upwards. We are allowed to be there and we want to be there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think there should be a question, a shift in the questions that we ask in that way. So like if you are in an area and you haven't yet seen anybody with a disability out there on different mobility devices adventuring around, instead of, well, there's just no people with disabilities that want to be out here. You know, and assuming that, I think people need to hit the pause button for a second and say, why isn't there anybody with a disability out here? Because the technology exists now. Yes, we have barriers like cost of the equipment, but we also have amazing nonprofits like the High Five Foundation or Kelly Brush Foundation, a number of other ones that help people with disabilities to get access to the funding to get this equipment. So the equipment exists. Some of those barriers are being managed by different nonprofits. People with disabilities are no different than anybody else in the terms of we want to have an adventurous lifestyle. We want to uh, achieve the highest quality of life that we, what we envision for ourselves. And we want to get out there with our friends and family and be a part of our communities and enjoy the outdoors. And so we have that in common with everyone else. So if you start asking the questions, why am I not seeing? I mean, if if 15% of the population is people with significant disabilities and 25% of the population is disabilities in general, Throughout the United States, that's a large number, right? It's a, I don't know where it's at now. I think the last time I read it was like 65 or 66 million people living with disabilities in the United States. So if you're not seeing anybody out there, there's usually a reason why. And it's not just because people with disabilities don't want to be out there. Yeah. I mean, I know when I go to Bentonville and I get there out of Jeremy, like it, I enjoy doing it. And I want to be able to do that in more places with him. And because it's a super fun, he's a super fun person to go ride with and he can send it as hard as I can, <laughs> you know, <laughs> sometimes harder <Yeah>. actually, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I remember like when, when I was riding with him back in March, we were on this trail called Fireline at Kohler and it's a jump line. It's a flow trail jump line. And before we took off at the top, he's like, I got to remember to hold back on this one, on this one like bridge section over. And he's like, cause I've been going too far and landing in the flat. And we get down to the bottom and his eyes are like super wide. I'm like, what's going on? He's like, man, I sent it further than I ever have in my life. I'm like, we just talked about like not sending it so far. He's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> well, uh, we had to do that at Walden's Ridge a little bit because downhill mountain biking is just so fun and really technical terrain for me personally. That's what I really enjoy. And that place was really fun. And so there was, there was sections that I was like, I could put this on repeat all day long and just get, you know, mm-hmm. better, faster, more efficient through that section, whatever it was. But I had to keep telling myself there was a couple features that like, well, I want to see if it's possible, one, for the work that we're doing right now. But also, I've never wrote anything like this. Like, I kind of want to see if I can do this, you know? And then like, I remember at one point, like, I rolled down something and, and Quinn made a, a a comment towards me, like, jokingly, like, let's remember we're working too, though. Like, we don't want to get hurt or break our bikes while we're out here. We got to finish this job. And I was like, that's a that's a really good point. Like, we are we are here working. But like, that's where our mindsets are at, too. Like. Like Quinn's done the ride the divide and done all these other really crazy endurance races and been super adventurous both in her life before and after her injury. And I'm the same way. And there's a lot of other people that have done some really adventurous things after post injuries or they're born with their disability. And that's just in their blood to want to get out there and, and, and push themselves physically. And that's what we all have in common, right? There's an adventurous spirit in all of us. And so it's how do we open that door so we can all express that. Right. Having a spinal cord injury, like maybe take the, took the paintbrush out of our hands for a minute, but we're still the artist we wanted to be. <laughs> yeah. With Dovetail, is there anything that we didn't discuss that you guys want to talk about that maybe that I didn't know to bring up in this conversation? Um, I do think that, you know, one of the things that we are putting a big focus on, obviously getting on trails and doing work out in the field is where the magic really happens a lot of the times, um, where we'll actually be able to see change happen after, you know, the plans we help create are implemented and done. But, you know, I, I think a lot of people should expect to see Quinn and I at more and more conferences. We've got a few in the works right now in the spring. 
um, to be able to educate and give kind of that entry level kind of field days and classroom time to all of this. So we, we not only are out there on the trails trying to help make the trails better, but if your organization, if it's like the off season and nobody can get on the dirt yet and you want to get some early season training going on, that's definitely something that we do quite a bit of is just getting out and educating and giving that entry level. You're not going to leave as an expert. It's like anything. You can't sit in the classroom for a couple of days and leave as an expert really in anything, in anything, right? But you'll leave with that kind of level one knowledge on how this applies to people with disabilities, the laws that exist, the technology that's out there, and how that can be applied to the trail systems in that area. So um, that educational portion of it is definitely something we don't want people to think, or we just want them to know it exists. That's something we do. Speaking of conferences, I think we were both at the Reno conference together, although we didn't cross paths. I heard that you were rolling through there. Mm-hmm. from a good friend of mine, Mike Repiak, who works for Imbo, which I know you guys know. Yeah. But with that, are you guys going to be at the uh, 2024 Lake Lanier PTBA conference in Georgia coming up here in March? I need to talk to Joe about that. It's on our calendar. Uh, I think one or both of us should try to arrive if we can. We have quite a few. Uh, in addition to that, we have like the an outdoor rec one in Reno. There's a Mountain West conference in Vernal, Utah. And then we have a BLM conference down in Arizona that we'll be doing this spring too. So we got to balance our shit. <laughs> There's definitely a lot of places you could go in terms of conferences. And it seems like that time of the year is like when they're really heavy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, and with the training, we've got another one in Nevada. We're doing on a training side of things, not at a, at a conference. It's the same thing. It's just that time of year. That's when everybody, you know, given not really getting out there and putting shovels in the dirt quite yet. And so perfect time to do that. But it's a, uh, it's fun. It's fun being able to go to have these types of conversations, but with more people. It's cool to see people's minds open up to, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Or I had no idea that equipment existed. That's, it's a cool thing to be able to share. It's uh, an honor to be able to go and share it, really. Yeah, I know a couple of friends of mine that I met up with in Grand Junction on my way home from the Reno conference last year, who were also at the Reno conference as well got into some of the mobility devices and, and rode them themselves at, you know, a post-conference session and they were blown away. Yes. Yeah. That's what we do. We educate and get you out there and got to see it to believe it. <laughs> we can't wrap this thing up without talking about the tour divide experience. <laughs> a lot of the stuff <laughs> I've talked about on this podcast, aside from trails is, is I'm going to say doing hard things. There's an event in the upper Midwest that I've been a part of a bunch of times called the Margie Gessick, which is a, a one day race on really hard single track. And it's like 112 miles and, but it's not 25 days of a hundred miles plus. So Quinn, we're not letting you go without talking about some of the stuff you've experienced (laughs) on that, on that excursion, because that's, that's impressive. Uh, well, the, the window of time was restricted because I was a, I was a government employee at the time and that's the only amount of time I had off. Uh, so I was like, do do the tour divider bust. Uh, and so I did the white rim in a day as a precursor, like a, can I do a hundred miles a day? Uh, in my, so my hand cycle that I use, uh, I have, I have a bowhead and I have a reactive and I chose the reactive just cause it gets me in a different like kneeling type position a little bit more aggressive. It's also like, I'm not sitting on my ass all day. It's like, I'm still sitting on my ass, but it feels a little different. And I also wanted to make sure that I could do hundred miles a day and it's a battery powered piece of equipment. So how many batteries do I need? How many miles do I get to a battery? Blah, 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 blah. So I did that and I figured out I could get three, about three batteries were sufficient for hundred miles a day. And, uh, I contacted goal zero and I was like, well, now I need, now I need three batteries a day to be charged and three batteries a day for the next day. And then I need to be solar charging or whatever the shit. There was a lot of planning. And then it was like, all right, let's see if you can hammer out. It's 2,500 miles and you have about 28 days off of work. So let's see if you can hammer out 100 miles a day. And we did. And we, our biggest day was through the Great, the, the Great Basin in Wyoming. We had the winds at our back and we did 140 miles that day. Oh, wow. Yeah. What was that experience like, though, as far as like... Like, what do you, what did you take away from it, from going through the, I mean, there's a, there's gotta be so many different ecosystems you went through. Oh my God. I want to go do it and slow roll it. Like, holy shit. Like Montana, freaking turquoise water everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. Amazing. The backside of the Tetons through Idaho. 
incredible. And then all of a sudden you're dropping off the wind into the Great Basin and like we passed a few hikers because it's also it crisscrosses with a continental divide hiking route on occasion. And so like we were going the opposite direction. And I remember seeing this guy and he looked like castaway, like he was walking into the sun through the gate race. And like, this is like one of the most desolate stretches. And he just looked like sunburnt and thirsty and like awful. And then you get to Colorado and it's home and it's beautiful and high mountain terrain. And then New Mexico still blows my mind every time. I was like, where are we in Tuscany? Like the Gila wilderness. And all of a sudden, I don't know, like dropping out of the Gila, like you're not in the desert at all until the very end. And then like this one day, yeah, as we were dropping into like, God, I can't remember the silver or something, silver city. Like before we dropped into there, like we're these little villages. And yeah, I was like, I'm in Tuscany. Where am I? And it wasn't until the very last day that you're like, oh, we're in the desert now. Okay. Yeah. Incredible terrain. Like so beautiful. Amazing. If you could do it in 190 days, I would do it if I had that much time off of work. <laughs> Maybe you can hey, ask your, co- your coworker, Joe. <laughs> hey, Joe, I'd like a, a half a year off to go do this experience again. We'll see you next year. It's, it's approved as long as I can join. Well, there we go. <laughs> yeah. Looks like we know we're going to be, we're, we're going to be able to find Dovetail Consulting. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's been honestly one of the really fun things about Quinn and I working together is we are so similar minded in a lot of ways. And we met at a conference doing, doing a uh, more advocacy for people with disabilities on like a, you know, meeting with politicians and that side of it, which is, an area we're both pretty passionate in, and and we just realize we think a lot in the same way. We adventure a lot in the same way. We want access in the same way. But yeah, then as I've got to know Quinn, she keeps doing these wild things like the ride the divide, which she passed through or passed through Jackson in that, and so I got to see her like it, you know, however many miles into it she was at that point, which is super cool. But yeah, I don't even know if you know this, but she, her, and a few others just did the like what was it, Quinn, the rim to rim in the Grand Canyon, which is like a whole nother. Mm-hmm. That's a wild one. Like that's mm-hmm. yeah, super cool. Yeah, we hiked the rim to rim. Yeah, and like Joe's leaving for Columbia next week for three weeks to go paragliding. People with disabilities do sick shit. <laughs> <laughs> and we get the best parking in the house. <laughs> that is very true. I mean, I know it is incredible. Man, like I can't like I'm just reflecting on the whole like the battery aspect of it. I know it's hard to go into the details, but the battery aspect of the tour divide the tour divide, like Oh gosh. So I had, I, I bought up like, they're not cheap. They're like $400 a battery. So I had seven batteries just to be safe. Cause I was like, you know, right. Like some days are going to be a little bit over a hundred miles. I don't know. And when I did the ri- uh, white rim in a day, it was like my third battery was like, Ooh, you have like 1% left. So a hundred miles was a stretch for three batteries. Um, and so, yeah, I got the goal zero Yeti power chargers and like here at home, I had to do some math, like, okay, let's, charge the Yeti power charger. Let's charge my batteries. A, how long does it take? How many batteries does the Yeti things charge? How much solar do I need? I Okay. So I need two Yeti chargers. I need 200 watt solar panels. And then the tour divide's fortunate enough that you go through hotel like towns pretty frequently. New Mexico is the longest stretch, but Montana, we were in like on a hotel, like every other night or, uh, you know, but then in Montana, I think we had, or excuse me, in Wyoming, New Mexico, we had four nights, I think without owning hotels. So it was like, all right, the last hotel, we got to charge every piece of equipment, and then hopefully we have solar along the way, <laughs> and we can keep recharging that stuff. And then throw in the mix of like, hey, I have a spinal cord injury. Like, let's not get a urinary tract infection. Let's not get a pressure sore. Let's uh, and my yeah, like if my piece of equipment breaks, like eighty miles into somewhere, like who's gonna piggyback my ass out? <laughs> Each day, what were you? What kind of time were you spending? Because I mean, I. I personally like to quantify, you know, everybody likes to quantify rides in miles, but the reality is, is like time is what your body knows, right? Your body does not know if you did five miles or 500 miles, if it took five minutes. Yeah. It was like eight to 12 hours every day on the bike, depending on the terrain. And again, yeah, averaging like 90 to 120. So just depended on the, how technical the terrain was. Like there's one day in the Gila that took a long time. It was like 80 miles of this like backcountry. Like it, I was like, man, I feel like I'm in Moab. Like you're going up, like you know, just flabby forest service road that's chossy and ugh. that took a really long time. And it didn't help that my mom decided to drive the van that day on that same road. Not recommended, mom. She like bottomed out and bent the hitch, and we had to like rescue my mom for a hot minute because she was the the 14. <laughs> that adds to the story, though. Oh my god! I was like, mom. <laughs> yeah, that's that's awesome. 
So that's, that's actually really awesome to be able to do that with, with, you know, other family there as well. Oh my God. She's gotten you. Oh my God. This rim to rim. Like we were trying to do the rim to rim to rim to rim and it didn't work. Like I had to like Garmin text my mom, like, Hey mom, my van. I remember when I spot, spotted you, my van with the map, like go find my van in the parking lot, go find Ben's van. It's somewhere also in the parking lot. You should be able to find it. The keys are hidden here. And then you have to drive four hours to the North rim of the Grand Canyon to come rescue us also. <laughs> yeah. Which could happen to anybody. So. Like, yeah. So you're going to Columbia, Joe. I am. Yeah, I leave on Monday. Yep. That sounds. Yeah, I'm going awesome. there. Yeah, it'll be pretty cool. There's an organization called Wheels for Flying out of Austria that has done most of the organizing for this, and it's the first, as far as I know, like the first competition and gathering of uh, people with disabilities that paraglide, the adaptive paragliding side of things. There's been some other small gatherings and that sort of thing, I think, in France. But this is being done in a little bit different manner. And so, yeah, it's like 12 days of flying. As long as the weather's good, the first six days is just to explore and have fun and learn the terrain and the weather and all the other pieces that come to, that you know, you have to put into, you have to factor when it comes to paragliding. And then last six days will be a, a cross-country competition, which hasn't really ever happened, as far as I know, for adaptive paragliders. So, sure, I could go join a race and be an adaptive athlete amongst everybody else. But there's just certain things, aerodynamics and other area, other things that they can be factored in and makes it to where I'm a little bit slower than everybody else. So yeah, I'm stoked. I leave on, I'm in the middle of trying to somehow get all my gear organized and ready to go and travel insurance and all those pieces so that we can go out there and rest easy and have a really good time flying in Columbia. It's going to be great. What does a competition like that entail? Like what, I don't know anything about that. So. Yeah. Well, um, it's, uh, yeah, most people don't, it's a pretty small community of people for sure. So there's a lot of different types of competitions, but the one we would be doing is a cross country competition. So paragliders are really cool in a sense that we can utilize the warm air that's being lifted from the ground up to the sky and get in these thermals and climb an altitude. And so you can use those to get really high and then leave that thermal and fly, go on glide for a distance and catch another thermal and get high again and keep flying and fly long distances that way and really navigate through the terrain and the sky. And so the competitions are, there's a bunch, there's a few different styles, but usually they have waypoints that you have to go and hit these certain targeted areas throughout the course. And it's who can get to the finish line first. And, but while while hitting all the points, but what's cool is you, it's your creativity from point A to point B to C to D and all of that. So not everybody's flying the exact same line. You just have to hit these certain areas, these targeted spots. And so, yeah, who can do it the fastest? So like the big dogs out there, they're you know those races are in really intense conditions and they're flying 100 plus miles a day and they're. Um, yeah, making it to where they're trying to go, the goal in the end. And there's a series of days to do that and points that are added up to the winner. So it's never really been done on a on a adaptive side of things. So this one's not really a sanctioned race. It's kind of the first ever like proof of concept kind of thing. So there's about 15 or 20 of us traveling from all over the world to all meet up and take part in all of this. So I think it's going to be a really cool experience, both just because the flying there is unbelievable from what I've heard. And so that's going to be really cool. But this is where you learn. You get around a bunch of other people. I'm, you know, I know a few other people that are wheelchair users that paraglide, but I've never been around a group of adaptive paragliders like this. So to, to take in what they've learned, you know, and share what I've learned and not only in like how to fly, but what it, how's your chair set up? How is your, we fly with wheels. You know, what's your setup versus my setup? What all are you bringing versus how I bring? How do you go to the bathroom in the air versus how do I go to the bathroom in the air? Like, it's really cool when you get these moments. Mountain bike festivals are very similar. When you get everyone together that does it in a similar way, all of a sudden you start learning what all these other people have figured out, how they make things happen. So, yeah, it's going to be, I'm doing my best. I won't completely disconnect from the world, but I'm doing my best to set myself up for success, to disconnect as much as possible while I'm there, to just take it all in. I'm excited. Do you know if this is going to get documented in any certain way? It, I'm sure there'll be some cameras. It, there's not. I don't know that there's like a film being created off of it or anything like that. 
there could be. I, I'm just not aware of it. If there is, uh, every, I mean, with everything everybody has as far as like GoPros and other cameras, I'm bringing some cameras out so I can film and take photos of certain things, um, just for just for personal use. But I don't know. Um, yeah, there's no. I don't think there's any like. I'm not aware of like any kind of like proper documenting that's going on. But there'll be stuff you could follow on like my Instagram or Project Airtime's Instagram. That's the that's the U.S. organization that pretty much helps everybody with a disability that wants to go flying. You know, if you're if adaptive flying is happening in the U.S., there's a chance the conversation at, at minimum started at Project Airtime to help get it going over there. They're out of um, Sandy or Draper, Utah, and so we're going with them. The team of us from the U.S. going and the founder of that organization and. We'll be posting stuff. There'll be at least that at a minimum. Well, I'll definitely put the links for your Instagram and Project Airtime in the show notes for this, so people that are interested can can learn more about it and see what see what was informally posted and captured, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a fun way. I mean, tr- don't get me wrong, trails are amazing, but it's pretty cool to get into the air and skip the trails and and fly. And it's a really, it's what's really neat is when I got, I got injured through flying. I don't know if we talked about that on the last one or not, but that's how I got hurt. And then when I got back up in the air, you know, everybody's just pulling on strings with their hands. And so that was the really neat thing was like, wow, I'm actually, this is way more inclusive than I thought it would be once we're all flying together. I just need a little help to take off. And so, yeah, to go out to a place like, and then in this time of year going out to Columbia, there's people from all over the world flying. So we're, there's going to be, tons of people there. So to get us all in the air together and, and be able to share that is, is pretty special. And, uh, yeah, there's like a, there's like a unique way to summit mountains from a paraglider, you know, and, and bypass a lot of the terrain that would be hard to get through otherwise. So it's neat. It's a really cool activity, cool form of aviation. It all fits in a backpack other than the frame of my chair. And it doesn't really make sense, but somehow it works and, and we get to do it. So we're lucky, you know, and one, one thing I wanted to say uh, earlier, just listening to some of the things we were talking about is, you know, just like kind of what I was saying with paragliding, like all of us, like, yes, Quinn and I are doing a lot of work uh, to help improve trails. And there's others out there doing the same same, maybe in a different style or different manner, but doing something similar to try to improve access for people with disabilities. And there's a lot of really cool people that are making new technology and all of that. And it's needed to keep progressing. But I do think it's always worth every now and again, just hitting that pause button to really appreciate how far we've come. Like there's so many festivals now that welcome people with disabilities. There's so much more access on trails than ever before in history that welcome in people with disabilities. The technology has come so far because of some amazing innovators out there that have put a focus on trying to make the technology better. So we have a long ways to go and there's a lot of work, thousands of miles of trail all over the country that we can make better with a little bit of a, a an adaption here or there, but it's a pretty cool time to be alive with a disability. And even just in the last decade for myself, I've noticed a massive difference. So the fact that like this paragliding thing is happening, that's another example. Like when I got into back into paragliding in 2014, this stuff wasn't happening. There wasn't this many people in the world flying with wheelchairs and that sort of thing. And now there is. So the growth is awesome. The progression is awesome. And it's just fun to be able to piggyback on that and keep moving it forward. Yeah, that's that's a good way to to end this one. Is there any, what's the best place for people to find both you, Joe, and you, Quinn? I will put Dovetail, Dovetail Trail Contracting in the show notes as well, but probably want to shout it out uh, verbally also. Website is dovetailtrails.com. And I guess one of the easier ways to find me on social media is Quindalina. And yeah, I know Joe Stone's at, out there too. Yeah, at me, Joe Stone. Myself, M-E-E-T, Joe Stone. Um, and we got an Instagram for Dovetail as well. And so you can find that, I think, on both of our pages. If you if you don't find it, searching around, but at Dovetail. When is it at Dovetail Trails? Yep. At Dovetail Trails. You can find us on Instagram yep. there as well. Nice. Any thank yous you want to do? Shout out quick. Obviously, that's a list I could go on forever. I think for every one of my guests. But <laughs> I'm thankful that Joe and I met at that conference way back in the day when I was just newly injured, and we have this passion, and we have collaborated. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty. It's pretty cool the way things are going and the partnership that's been created. I mean, it's it's pretty cool to be friend, really good friends with somebody, and to be able to work 
on this type of thing. It's such a passion project for both of us. So this is the energy wrapped around Dovetail has been super fun to to build off of. But but honestly, Josh, thank you for getting us on here and helping spread the word. This is super cool yeah. to be able to just share a little about about what we're doing and and continue this conversation. I've both times now that we've chatted, it's been the time goes by, you know, really quickly, which is awesome. Great conversation. So just really appreciate you welcoming us into your trail effect family and helping us spread the word. Well, I thank both of you for yeah. making the time to to come on here because that's, I mean, it's the guests that, that make this what it is, you know? And so I love having new guests on and learning new things and having returning guests on too, because there's always new things that have, that have happened since the last time we talked and it's just really good stuff. Right on. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you're new to the Trail Effect Podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. If you listen to the Trail Effect Podcast on Apple or Spotify, please don't forget to leave a rating and review, as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect Podcast. Also, don't forget to check out Cooley Creative at www.dojustsendit.com. For additional ways to help support the Trail Effect Podcast, check out the affiliate links tab at the Trail Effect website, where you'll find links to Kettle Mountain Apparel, Worldwide Cyclery, and Trail One Components. By using the affiliate links found at www.trailfectpodcast.com, a small commission will come back to the podcast, which will help keep this thing going. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>